Greetings and hello to everyone. This is the Business of Betting podcast and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is episode 17 and we have astute horse racing form analyst Daniel O'Sullivan joining the podcast. Daniel has spent over a decade working in the racing world. He is a professional punter and racing analyst who offers highly valuable punting insights and advice through his service, BetSmart. Daniel is a leading mind when it comes to the philosophy and broader topics of racing and wagering. We discuss the current wagering environment, betting for a living, current trends, and much more. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy my chat with Daniel O'Sullivan. Today, I'm joined by Daniel O'Sullivan. Daniel, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, hi, Jake. It's a pleasure to be on. So, Daniel, do you want to take us through your background and, and what led you to become uh, a form analyst and a racing expert in Australia and how you got involved with, with racing and betting? Sure, Jake. To, to be honest, it just started as a hobby for me. I went to the races. It was in the mid-90s uh, with a, a work function where I was working at the time. And I just found that I really enjoyed it so much and, and I was working in an analytical type role. So I immediately started after that to sort of look at, I guess, what material was out there to learn how to do the form and, and things like that. I came across uh, some material by Don Scott, which pretty much every Australian punter will be familiar with. And I guess from there started my passion and, and study of the races and learning how to do the form, learning different aspects uh, and then it just really developed from there. I was so passionate about learning more. I used to go to the races every weekend, even though I was betting very small. I learned a lot on the track. And it just really grew and developed from there to, to a point that my ideas for, for form and assessing horses and races developed and grew. And eventually I, I sort of got to the point in the early 2000s where I was doing sort of quite well and, and was able, with a couple of other different things going on at the time, to transition into... Uh, betting and, and doing things in racing on a full-time basis. So I would imagine there's a fair few people listening who are coming from a similar spot as you. They enjoyed racing. They bet a small amount. They might go to some races. They follow it pretty closely. Do you have any sort of advice or maybe looking back on how you got more deeply involved for those people to, I guess, provide an impetus for them to get involved full-time or, or maybe take it a little bit more seriously? Are, are there any things they can be doing or something that sort of clicked in your mind at a certain point that was that impetus to get you doing it full-time? Look, I think there's there's three key things when, when I look back on Jake. The first thing is that you have to love the game, you have to love racing, you have to be passionate about it, and you have to have a sort of an unwavering desire to continue learning and, and getting better. Uh, I think that's, that's very important. Uh, the second thing is to... Uh, believe in yourself. I remember in the very early days, I didn't sort of know much about racing. I thought I did, but experience always tells you you don't know nearly as much as as you thought. Um, But I always had a belief. I used to go to the races and look at, you know, the big punters there in the ring running along the rails, backing horses to to win tens of thousands of dollars. I used to read about other people in racing and, and other punters. 
And I remember just thinking to myself, well, if they can do it, there's no reason I can't. Uh, I don't think they're any smarter than I am uh, and different things like that. So I always had a belief that, you know, I could achieve my goals. So you, so you need to maintain that no matter how difficult uh, things get. You just need to, to love the game and, and continue believing in yourself. And the third thing is uh, when it comes to betting is you just need to be sensible with your money. Um, you need to look at it as a journey, as a, as a learning process and recognize that, being a successful punter or doing anything successful in racing that involves wagering is about far more than some magical selection process. It's, it's very much about your own psychology, um, your own uh, keeping a balanced state of mind, uh, being able to manage money well and make good decisions. And I think that's where most punters come unstuck is that side of the game. So I, I was very lucky uh, at that time. I was studying at university at the time and, and was doing a... Uh, subject on decision-making theory and I found that a lot of the material in that subject had a direct relevance to punting and it really helped to enlighten me to just how important that aspect is of, of wagering and to really develop some skills and sort of hone them and concentrate just as much on that side of the game, the decision-making, the psychology, the understanding winning and losing runs, uh, spending as much time on that as I did on doing the form and, and trying to find the, the perfect approach to, to finding horses to back. So what was the evolution of the Rating Bureau and BetSmart? How did it ultimately come to that? And you've obviously got the website now and the services you offer and also a lot of great free content and you do some media spots as well. What was the path from, I guess, some of the stuff you've mentioned once you got involved full-time to now and starting that site? Yeah, well, the, the Rating Bureau has been a, an iconic business in, in Australian racing since the, the late 1960s. It was started by uh, one of my business partners, a guy called Marcel Plant, and his father, Rem Plant, who was a, a famous Australian punter and, and writer at the time and produced some you know, really groundbreaking sort of material to, to help punters learn and understand the form. And, and they started a business which continued on and evolved into the computer age and, and then um, in about mid-2000s, 2004, 2005, uh, I joined that business as a partner to, to bring some additional sort of skills to the table. And, and we've been sort of, you know, going on with, with that business ever since, sort of providing you know, information, intelligence and, and other products and services to both uh, commercial organisations in racing and also individual punters. And then more recently, the, the BetSmart service was something we launched uh, almost a year ago. It was around September 2016. And that service was really designed to try and make a difference to the level of knowledge and confidence that the average punter can have and to help them use that to enjoy their wagering and, and love of horse racing uh, much more. So it's basically an educational and uh, pre-race sort of information service for, for racing uh, at a very sort of affordable price to, to make it as accessible to as many people as we possibly can. As I said, with that aim of, of trying to make a bit of a difference across the industry to, to the level of education that, that is available to, to punters because there, there hasn't been a whole lot over time. Uh, but now things are starting to pick up. We, we've had that service, as I said, we kicked off about a year ago. And in more recent times, sort of other people in the uh, industry started to offer their own educational um, products and services, both fee-based and free. Uh, which has been really terrific. And, and as I said, even before BetSmart, there was, you know, people doing that, including myself. So it, it's it's great that that part of the game is really starting to build momentum now with, with more people, more intelligent people with something to offer 
sort of taking the time to, to put it out there in industry, which I think is is great for people looking to learn. And I think in the long run, it's going to be great for the industry as well. You're right. There is a lot of great free content out there now. One thing that I find impossible to get my hands on is the actual race day. And I know there's a lot of changes that have happened and it's moved from, I guess, on the track where everyone could go to the track and sort of experience a race day. But now in 2017, the race day experience is essentially shifted to off the course. So if you don't mind, can you take us through or do you want to dissect your race day and perhaps we can start with before a race and what you're doing? Are you Have you got Betfair open? Have you got corporate bookmaker sites open? Are you looking at dynamic odds? What's your approach in the lead up to or in between races when you're, you know, on a Saturday or a Wednesday, for example? Yeah, well, you're 100% right, Jake, that there's been a huge transition now to, to where everything is sort of technology based and, and primarily, you know, that can be done anywhere, whether it be in your home, in an office, um, in your bed, whatever you like, really. Um, so, yeah, my, my day, uh, you know, starts with a process of uh, looking at looking at form, uh, different things like track pattern, all the different intelligence and, and your own process for doing the form and working out bets. Uh, you then set a plan for the day. Uh, then it's a matter of sort of implementing that plan. Some bets you might place early, others you're waiting for the race. Uh, you've definitely got screens open uh, monitoring the market, both the official uh, fixed odds prices as, as they move from the different corporate bookmakers uh, and also uh, Betfair sort of using tools where that market updates every every one second or so. And it's a matter of, uh, in my case, knowing what you want to do on the day and you know following the races and, and getting your bets on at the best possible time, you think it is some. As I said, sometimes you're placing bets early. Other times you're you're monitoring the market, and that may influence your decisions and you're betting late. Uh, and also, you know, work with a couple of other you know friends uh, that that help, and also bet themselves and, and help to sort of get bets on and, and things like that because it is a, a very important part of the game. What about post race? Are you reviewing times? Are you thinking about track patterns? Trying to analyze any potential bias that's happening? Because I would imagine if you're betting in more than one jurisdiction or even one and you've got 30 minutes or so between races what are you allocating your time in that 30 minute window between races because i would imagine those seconds and minutes can be very valuable yeah well in, in my case just sort of betting you know a, right across the country so sometimes there's there's you know only a couple of minutes up until the next race um, we're not betting in every race so there can be cases where, where you've got quite a long gap uh so generally uh, especially for the main days following the races on the day and there may be things happen that force you to change your plans. Uh, for example, it may rain heavily during the meeting, which significantly alters the, the structure of races, how they're going to be run, uh, track patterns and things like that. Uh, sometimes that can you know, force you to you know, abandon bets for the day uh, or in some cases you may just continue with, with your original plan. Um, then once the races are finished, I'm very heavily ratings based. So there's always a process in the days after a meeting, looking at past meetings, um, feeding in times and sectional data and, and other intelligence to allow you to calculate you know, performance measures for horses, which then get stored in the database and, and form a part of that horse's uh, form history when you're assessing the next time they race. How flexible are you on race day when it comes to assessing the different variables and then integrating them within your ratings? Are you are they fixed or do you have room to move when it comes to different horses and that might impact your staking plan or your betting strategy or some of your money management approaches to different races or different race days? 
Yeah, there's, there's definitely uh, some flexibility there. I always look at whether it be form analysis or, or the wagering part itself as a, as a blend between art and science. So there's definitely a scientific component, which is very heavily data-driven, uh, objective sort of processes. And then there's always uh, what I call the art form, which is where more some of your intuition comes into play, uh, some of that subjective judgment, which is very hard to quantify. Um, but the, the entire aim of that is to help you to make uh, betting decisions that, first of all, you feel are optimal, but secondly, just feel right to you. I'm a big believer in, in intuition and feel when it comes to betting, and not everything can be systematically or mechanically run. Uh, I really believe in, in that process of, of making your own decisions and making decisions that feel right, which help you to live with the consequences, you know, especially when, when you lose. So let's talk about the current wagering environment. And I know you're an expert in Australia and you bet, you know, Sydney and obviously around the country. There's a few things I want to touch on. Firstly, how do we balance the shutting down of accounts with something like minimum bet rules and also the future of the bookmaking industry? Because I know that bookmakers are given a set of rules that they need to play within when it comes to, you know, the different tax models and regulations that are occurring in the different jurisdictions. Uh, and then you've obviously got the the punting group or the punting community who is almost at the mercy as, of a lot of those corporate bookmakers and then the impact of different regulations on Betfair, for example. What is your overall philosophy or, or thoughts on the, I guess, this sort of topic with regards to shutting accounts and how we impact or implement minimum bet rules and things like that? Yeah, look, I think... In the early days, Jake, it used to get me very, very frustrated and I used to invest a lot of emotional energy in in cursing how biased the, the game and the landscape is towards corporate bookmakers who could pick and choose who they did business with, could put up odds and then not accept bets on those odds. Uh, and this was freely allowed by by administrators and, and uh, other uh, sort of people in, in positions to make decisions on that. And it was not only unfair to, to punters, I guess, but also it was costing the industry turnover and, and therefore revenue. Uh, in sort of more latter years, I, I guess I've become a little bit more philosophical and, and just accepted that that is the nature of the game, uh, that you need to concentrate on those things that you have control over rather than those things that you don't. And we've certainly seen things like minimum bet laws come in, which uh, are some help. There's, there's no denying that, but they're even still biased towards corporate bookmakers where... They can put up early prices on a Wednesday and they technically don't have to bet anyone they don't want to until 9.30 on race day. Uh, my philosophy is that if uh, you're a, a bookmaker and you put up prices, then you should be forced to bet those prices. If you don't want to do that, then don't put your prices up, basically. Um, the ability to, to put those prices up and just accept small bets from whoever they want is effectively free intelligence that's given to the corporate bookmakers, um, which helps them to increase the profitability of their business. And as I said, which again is, is sort of biased against the punter. But as I said, that's the nature of the game now. So you learn that you have to accept it and modify your approach and strategy to to make the most of, of the situation because the alternative is we all have a choice. We can go and play another game uh, or do something entirely different. And what about the the digital revolution? I live in New York and I've seen it with even someone like ESPN who is one of the biggest sports properties in the world and they're owned by Disney and they're losing uh, subscribers uh, to their cable network bundles. And obviously very recently, Disney bought a majority share in a company called Bam Tech who was owned by Major League Baseball to sort of reinvent their 
OTT offering and try and compete with the Netflix and the Hulus and the other streaming subscribers-based platforms around the world. It seems like in racing, there's a lot of discussion about the problems and a lot of the issues that are happening, and there's not a lot of action, seemingly from the outside. Is the wagering world and the digital revolution and a lot of the different technological changes and the competition from you know, sports betting, is it just an insurmountable task for racing and they're up against such a huge issue that they just have to sort of accept it and try and do the best they can or are there avenues they can take which is sort of up with the times and get on board with the, the evolution and the revolution? Yeah, I think, look, there's definitely big challenges facing racing, uh, the threat of sports betting, uh, the the social, I guess, uh, perception of, of wagering and, and things like that. It wasn't that long ago where wagering, especially on the races, was seen as a as an acceptable part of society and it was encouraged and it was a part of the fabric of our, of our everyday life. There was uh, racing on mainstream TV. There was, you know, a lot of coverage of it in the news and, and things like that. That's all changed o- over the years. I think the biggest problem that racing faces here is... The structure, we have a very fragmented structure uh, on a state-by-state basis without one overarching body that that uh, is not resourced or given the power to sort of make important decisions and, and implement important strategies. So while all of those challenges are very relevant, the problem is that it's, it's too big a task for one individual jurisdiction to say they're going to step up and, and take on that challenge. It really needs to be more of a national approach. And as I said, there's no national body that has the resourcing or the power to sort of implement some of those strategies. And I think that's a real key issue for racing because at the moment, no one's really looking at the question of where are our, where are our customers in 10, 15, 20 years going to come from. Um, all of the, the trends in racing, the, the demographic, uh, the rise of sports betting and other sort of social trends, uh, I guess, are threats to, to racing. Uh, and at this stage, as you mentioned, it doesn't seem like there's been a lot done on the outside. I think individual jurisdictions and uh, media bodies and things like that are doing the best they can within the framework they work in. Uh, but I, I think an, until there's a, a broader national approach taken with, with serious resourcing, uh, you know, staffed by the right people with leadership qualities and strategic vision, then yeah, racing will struggle to, to make a dent in some of those challenges. So what's holding back a uniform body or organisation from forming? Is it there's too much power within individual clubs or are state jurisdictions sort of holding on to what they have and they're not interested? Because it seems quite unusual that there might be a you know a mile race in Sydney and then two weeks later there's another mile race in Melbourne and then or there might be a 2,000-metre race that doesn't fit in with the normal programming or structure of Sydney to Melbourne sort of horses who are going from state to state during the spring or or autumn to try and have a full preparation? Yeah, on that issue of programming, that's definitely, I think, something most people would agree with, that each state is basically running their own race. There has been a level of, of cooperation and, I guess, some unwritten rules that you don't encroach too much upon another jurisdiction sort of territory. Uh, some recent changes by Racing New South Wales here, um, have, have kind of thrown that up in the air where they've taken a much more aggressive stance with some of their programming and race changes impacting on on Victoria, which is the other major jurisdiction here in Australia. Uh, so certainly with race programming, that's a, that's a key issue. Uh, and as I said, just the broader strategic issues about where customers are coming from, how we're growing the size of the pie rather than uh, racing just wanting to, to take more of, of uh, what's there to, to fund 
the business going forward. They need to look at how to grow the size of the pie. And I think you asked why there's no sort of national body. I think one of the reasons for that is, is as you alluded to, is individual states that have a strong power base and, you know, want to, I guess, maintain that or not engage in any change that they may see negatively impact their business. Uh, and sometimes, you know, that needs to happen, I think, to, to force change for the greater good in the long term. Uh, but you can't blame individual states for not wanting to do that. Uh, and the other thing is, I think perhaps there's not just uh, the right people with the right amount of influence pushing for, for a strong national body, um, whether it be at the political level or, or otherwise. So you mentioned the greater good. Is there enough racing product, too much racing product? Is there enough in each state, but collectively, and now that we have so much access, it is too much? Or what are your thoughts and feelings on the racing product? Because I know and always it always comes up about Hong Kong and the amount of racing product they have, and it just seems like the optimal level of racing product hasn't been uh, found, and the equilibrium is sort of off kilter a little bit and it's tilted towards too much is that the general feeling i'd say that's the general feeling it's an interesting debate personally i don't have a problem with it um from a punter's perspective we, we can always choose that the days or the races that we participate in or not and i think from an overall uh, industry funding perspective there's there's an economies of, of scale sort of in place where Basically, the, the more races and the more meetings and the higher the turnover figure. So, for example, you know, running two races of eight horses will produce more turnover than one race with 16 horses, for example. I believe um, that, to be, that to be true, like for like. Um, so there's very much a, a mindset that, you know, you need to have volume to, to sustain interest and, and generate more turnover. Um, you can debate whether that's, that's true or not. Um, certainly as a punter, I don't have an issue with it because I can I can pick or choose and set my own schedule. Uh, perhaps where the biggest issue may lie with that is the welfare of, of other participants like jockeys, uh, trainers, uh, strappers and, and other people associated with the horses because, you know, we've got instances where jockeys will ride at a, at a night meeting on a Friday night at Mooney Valley, which may not wrap up until... 10.30, so those riders may not be getting home until well after midnight and asleep, and then they're riding the next day on, on the Saturday. Um, they're they're travelling all over their particular state, sometimes doing hundreds of kilometres for rides. Uh, trainers are doing the same, uh, strappers and, and things like that. So it can be a very gruelling seven-day-a-week schedule with not much downtime, uh, not much balance in their life. And, and it's easy to say those participants can pick and choose, but it doesn't follow the same sort of rules as punters because in the case of a jockey, if, if they're picking and choosing and not accepting rides, then they can quickly find themselves out of favour with trainers or owners and, and have other opportunities limited. So it's more a case that if you want to succeed, you have to play the game that everyone is. And, and at the moment, that's a seven-day-a-week game uh, with very little uh, downtime for, for those participants. So I think there's a bit of an issue from that perspective. Um, but generally, from a punter's perspective, I don't have a huge problem with the with the amount of product. Okay. And what about the integrity issues that the sport has faced in recent times? Obviously, the cobalt doping-related stuff and then different track bias issues have come up. Uh, there's obviously the whip rule that's caused a little bit of controversy. How does racing improve the optics around this? Because it seems like none of it has been handled fantastically well. I don't know necessarily if the current approach is working i know here in the u.s the nfl banned running back from the dallas cowboys ezekiel elliott for six games and everyone thinks it's crazy 
punter was banned for one game and there was a video of Ray Rice, which everyone's probably seen now, who was in an elevator with his wife and he was banned for two games. Anything the NFL does, doesn't matter. It's going to be seen as wrong or incorrect. And obviously Tom Brady and Deflategate here in the US took a while to get through the federal court system. I'm not saying it's it's necessarily similar, and it is. It just seems like they're they're on a path to nowhere, and anything they do is going to be seen as a problem or an issue, or they haven't handled it well. How do they get themselves out of that situation with regards to the optics for the the racing bodies who are in charge? Well, I think it's very difficult to do that. As the saying goes, you can't please all of the people all of the time, and I think it's an ongoing and, and evolving challenge. I think in some cases, resourcing is an issue. Uh, if you look at the topic of track bias, for example, uh, there's some tracks around Australia that simply don't have the resources in terms of equipment or staff to, to maintain them at an appropriate level to produce you know, good and fair racing surfaces. Um, that's an issue for both punter confidence and, and also safety. Um, but look, I think that generally, you know, they do the best they can. Um, other top other topics uh, such as, you know, performance enhancing substances and, and things like that. Uh, the, the handling of the cobalt uh, cases in Victoria in particular seemed to progress into a debacle. I mean, it went on for a number of years and, and in the end, uh, some of the key players were, were effectively, you know, acquitted of, of their role in it, the, tr the trainers. Uh, I think it's very hard to comment on what they need to do to make it better, but I think there obviously needs to be strong leadership. Uh, there needs to be clear processes and clear things in place for how they handle these things and, and all you can really do is, is just learn from the mistakes that are made i think the cobalt cases went on far too long and, and drag racing through the mud uh, and i think in in other instances there's uh, issues around integrity such as the running of races um, you know perhaps potential tactical choices and things like that where jurisdictions do their best with the resources that they have i think some states do it better than others um, but again, I think it's something that, you know, potentially needs more resources and and a stronger focus. What have you seen in the last five years from a technology and I guess digital basis that has moved the industry forward? I know me personally living in the US, a lot of the major races take place Friday night while I'm asleep. I'll get up and, and open Racing New South Wales and their video product on early Saturday morning and it's fantastic. It's uh, you can do the full race, the last 600 meters, easy to watch. It's you know embedded in their site really, really well. There's other states that don't do it so well, and obviously there's areas where they can work on. But what other things have you seen within the racing industry that has you know adapted to the younger generation who are wanting access to things you know in pretty much in real time, or they want to uh, be on the cutting edge of the different technology and the digital offering that that can be out there compared to the other competing sports or other products. Yeah, well, I think the replays you mentioned is a huge one. It wasn't that long ago where, you know, you couldn't really get replays online. And I found myself recording them on a, on a DVD recorder and having folders full of DVDs that I needed to pull out if I wanted to watch a replay. Uh, now, as you said, within, you know, a short time after each race, you can you can go back and, and watch the replay. So that's been a key uh, a key enhancement for, for the industry. Um, other things like the recording of, of sectional times, um, verifying official times through different services uh, to provide punters with, with more data and more insights been a big step forward. Um, there's been an explosion of, of free uh, websites and online resources for punters to use that, that have a wealth of information that is freely available for anyone to use. 
um, that once upon a time just just didn't exist, and you had to maintain your, your own systems and information to to pick up that. And also, just in a technology sense, from from a punter's point of view, um, you know, other technology around modelling and analytics and things like that has, has been a huge help in helping individuals to take. Uh, you know, the next step in applying technology to be smarter and more astute in how they analyse races and, and make decisions. So while I wouldn't say racing is at the cutting edge of, of technology, I think we're quite a few steps behind uh, on a number of fronts. But there has been, you know, plenty of uh, enhancements over the last five years. And I think that's made it, you know, a lot better for punters and has helped racing to perhaps engage punters a little bit more than it did in the past. So what are some of the tools that the professional punters or the syndicates might be using? I don't want you to give away your IP or, or anything like that, but is it now the data and the databases, uh, the computing power, and I guess the collection and amalgamation of all that content and the ease of access to that content that has made it easier for the punters who are operating within their model or within their system? Is that what's been the biggest development in recent years? Yeah, definitely. I think if you're operating at a serious level, uh, you need information systems. I mean, racing, there's, there's 14 or 15,000 races in Australia each year. And even if you're only following racing in your home state, you really need to have some type of system to uh, capture and, and keep all of that information and present it in a way that you can efficiently analyse it. So databases, whether they be something you buy uh, from an existing provider or something you develop yourself is one of the key tools of, of you know, just about all serious players these days. Uh, as I mentioned, sort of, you know, just everything is very much data-based. It doesn't mean that your approach to racing is is completely scientific and mechanical, but it all comes back to objective measures uh, and data. So, you know, a good database, all of the different information in terms of official results, uh, video comments, uh, track bias, uh, history, uh, times and sectionals, your different standards and things like that, all forms part of a, a good system. And then it's a matter of, of how you apply that. As I mentioned in the past, you know, using technology like machine learning and other predictive modelling, which can, you know, take all of that data and efficiently produce uh, information that you can use to, to help make your decisions in a way that you could never do it uh, by yourself with the time you have available and you could never do it as consistently and as unbiased as, as what some of that technology can. So that type of stuff is, you know, the, the type of approach and concepts that are, you know, closer to the cutting edge of what people are sort of doing these days. Um, but it's always moving forward and, and that's one of the key challenges as a punter is you always need to try and keep yourself at that cutting edge and, and staying ahead of what the large majority of people are doing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So Chris Waller and Darren Weir and, and these dominant trainers, is that something that's great for racing in your mind? Because I know in the past when I grew up, there was certainly dominant trainers, but nothing on this level. There was Gay Waterhouse, Peter Snowden when he was at Dali. Um, you obviously had Lee Friedman and others here or there in Melbourne. What was the, I guess, change that made them so dominant? Do you think that's a good thing for racing? Look, I think I'd probably prefer, if it wasn't the case, where you, where you strike a race and, and Darren Weir or Chris Waller have four or five runners in the race, it, it adds a level of complexity and, and some uncertainty. But look, on the whole, again, it's just part of the game. It's These guys are you know, effectively applying free trade where they've built their business. And, and why it's come about is because they've been very good and very successful at what they do. And clients want to buy and, and send horses there, which is great for racing because without 
guys like that you know some of those people may not get involved in in horse racing or they may not own as many horses so i think that uh as i said they've used their ability to to build their business clients have the choice to to send their horses uh, elsewhere if they choose to keep it with those people and it means that darren or chris waller have hundreds and hundreds of horses uh in work and and dozens of runners every week then it's pretty hard to to criticize that because the alternative is some type of, of cap um, which limits, but that's really a restraint of, of free trade, I guess, and, and the uh, freedom these guys should have to, to build their business as, as big as they like. And I guess if you, if you operate in that type of market, if they get too big and, and can't maintain the results or can't provide the service that their clients want, then just the, the nature of economics, everyday economics, means that those those people will you know look for better service elsewhere. But if they're not and they're staying there, then that's all credit to them. And and as we said, they're, they're, they're great trainers. They achieve fantastic results. And generally, they're, they're very open with the public and the media with their horses and, and things like that. So I don't see a huge problem with it. Yeah, interesting, because I think a lot of people don't like it. And I can understand why they think it might be bad for racing. But you're right, it is just them, I guess, optimizing their positions and using it to their advantage, which they're more than entitled to do. When you look at a race where they might be four or five horses from the same stable, what are some of the things you can do to sort of analyze that as best you can? Because I guess in the back of your mind, you probably think if it was, let's say it was Godolphin a year ago and they were all, you know, four or five Godolphin runners out of nine and one of them had James McDonald on, you sort of automatically lean that way. What What are some of the things you do when you do have those instances of a large grouping from the one stable? It was certainly jockey choice is a key factor historically you can look at the, the jockeys are trainer users where they've been most successful and that can be you know very apparent uh, if there's intent from the stable there also just looking at things like where the horses are at the stage in their preparation they may have four or five horses in a race some of them may be first or second up whereas others are well into their preparation so you can make distinctions there uh, the horses still have you know their own form quality and, and history and level of talent uh, which you can assess regardless of, of who the trainer is. So I think there's some perception there that, you know, maybe there's funny games played with horses not trying and things like that. And I'm not suggesting for one minute that doesn't happen in racing, but I think trainers like those you mentioned, I mean, I don't have an issue with their integrity. I think it's perfectly fine. They're trying to do the best for their owners. Uh, they're trying to, you know, win races, obviously. And I don't think there's really anything for them to gain by consistently trying to mislead the public or, or sort of play, you know, play funny buggers as, as it were. So I think sometimes punters, it's easy to use that as an excuse. If something happens in a race you don't like, is to immediately blame that factor. Well, Waller has too many runners or we has too many runners or something like that. When the reality is that there's surprises and horses that run better or worse than expected in every race. Um, it doesn't matter if they all happen to come from from one stable, I think sometimes that's just punters looking for for an excuse to, to blame uh, something or someone else for, for a result that they're not happy with. So I'm going to open up a track equidistant from Randwick and Flemington, somewhere in the middle of Australia. I'm going to start a race. It's going to be about 1,471 metres, the race. Two horses running, Black Caviar and Winks, at their peak of their powers. Who wins? Oh, that's a really interesting question. If, if you talk about a match race over a certain distance, um, uh, that distance is probably not ideal for either of them. Um, 
I would, I would say Winks if, if I had to uh, go in that case. So I think it's not to downplay the achievements of, of Black Caviar at all. She is phenomenal and, and one of the best horses we've, we've ever seen. Uh, from my personal perspective, though, I think Winks has shown uh, herself to be more versatile in terms of the distance ranges that she's achieved uh, her, her successes at. And I think that's a, a very important component of, of being a, a champion. Uh, so I think uh, in a technical assessment perspective, there's very little between them on their absolute peak performances. Uh, Winks has, has been over sort of that 2,000-metre trip in, in Cox Plates, uh, whereas Black Caviar was, was more over 1,200 metres in, in, in the sprints. Uh, but as I said, just Winks's versatility to, to do it over different ranges, different distance ranges, uh, different track conditions. Uh, in some of her races, some of her great wins, she's overcome adversity or bad luck in the run to win. And I think... You know, they're the qualities that, you know, people get really engaged by, and, and certainly I do. So from my perspective, that sort of gives her a little bit of an edge in my eyes. And what would you be doing with Winks after this spring if all goes well and she runs up to standard, as she's shown in the past? Are you looking abroad? Would you be thinking about going overseas with her? Oh, look, I think, you know, all things being equal, I would be. I mean, there's always, uh, you know, that... This is a once-in-a-lifetime horse, and, and I'd like to think if she was mine that you'd like to give her a crack on, on the world stage um, rather than if you didn't, then years down the track you, you may regret that and think, oh, I wish we just had it, you know, given her a go and and sort of seeing, you know, what she could achieve there. Um, there's absolutely no doubt that her performance figures and, and, and level of talent uh, is at the seriously elite uh, world-class, so it's, it's even above what you might consider to be general sort of world-class level. She's up there with you know, the best handful of horses across the entire globe. Uh, it's not easy to, to travel a horse, so, that, you know, that is a factor and, and some horses can get sick and, and things like that. Uh, so it's an interesting balance. I guess it would just come down to, you know, what sort of, uh, I guess, thirst you have for wanting to, I guess, put that final uh, trophy on her mantelpiece to say that she's achieved success on the world stage, which many of our you know, other great racehorses over time have sort of gone on to do. And there's certainly some people that believe you, you can't be considered, you know, a true champion until you've done that. Uh, I don't necessarily believe uh, that myself, um, but it would be very, very satisfying if you were able to take a horse like that uh, over to Europe and, and to dominate or, or even just win, you know, many of their top races. So what are some of those great horses that you've seen over the years? Obviously, when I go back home to Australia and catch up with friends, we'll often talk about Lonro in the Australia Cup or Maccabi Diva winning the Sydney Cup or you know, even some of the Cox Plates or Sunline or those type of horses. What are the, some of the memories you have of great racing uh, in the past? Yeah, well, my era, era I guess, Jake, is, is very similar. I, was, I consider myself very lucky that when I took an interest in racing in the mid-90s that uh, we had the likes of Octagonal Saintly and nothing like a Dane who were outstanding three-year-olds sort of running against each other and then went on to, to be great horses uh, in their own right as, as older horses. And, and I didn't realise it at the time, but the excitement that was generated, you know, by those horses and, and watching them progress was something that really helped to, uh, I guess, strengthen my sort of passion for, for racing and, and sort of forced me to continue on. So I'll always have a a soft spot for a horse like Octagonal who just had this great will to win and, and never won by a great margin, but just always seemed to to stick his uh, neck out on the line. I remember a day at Rose Hill uh, where 
his popularity was was so great that the crowd were, were dressed up in cerise of, of the Inghams at the time. Uh, they had a sky rider with a plane sort of doing a big O in the sky and and it was uh, a group one race. I just forget the name of the race. It may have uh, been the Queen Elizabeth or something like that. And, and as was usual, he was sort of out the back and running on in the straight and you thought he may not get there. And there was another horse called Arcady and they hit the line. And I think everyone on the course thought he'd been beaten. Uh, we all sort of waited for the photo. I was sure he'd been beaten. And then they put the, the photo up and you saw that he won. And, and the whole course just basically erupted. And it was just, you know, moments like that, which I guess, you know, make racing unique and, and make it so great to, to sort of follow. So he's certainly one of my favourites. Then I go into horses like Might and Power, who's probably my all-time favourite horse, just for his sheer uh, sustained speed and, and sort of front-running style. And then certainly in... in uh, you know, after that, horses like Northerly and, and Sunline came along. And we've been very lucky that, you know, you, you never have to wait too long to, to get a champion horse come along. And as I said, that's what one of the great things about racing is that, um, you know, apart from being a punter and, and the mechanics of all of that, I, I genuinely sort of love the sport of racing uh, and really, you know, get excited by watching, you know, great horses going up against each other and, and horses that turn out to be champions. And, and as I said, that's one of the really unique things about racing and, and something that should be promoted more. So what on earth is going on with this Everest race then? Take me through that. And it looks like it might be a solid Group 2 race at the moment. Is it going to get to the point they want it to? Oh, look, perhaps not this year. Look, oh, I think it's a, you know, you can't uh, criticise anyone for, for wanting to try new ideas. That's been one of the, I guess, you know, criticisms of racing is that it doesn't try new things. It's so stuck in traditional ways. And, and here Racing New South Wales have tried to create a concept uh, with a vision in mind, which which I think is a great vision if, if they can pull it off. And I think everything has to start somewhere. So this year they may not attract, you know, the greatest field, but as long as, uh, you know, they, they continue to support the concept and, and continue to market it right. I think it can grow into something, you know, very special. Uh, you know, the Melbourne Cup didn't start off as, as the race that stopped the nation. It developed into that and, and all of these things take time. So uh, I don't think we can be too critical just yet. I think it needs to be, you know, given a couple of years and, and then see where we're at in maybe three years' time and then form a judgment on it. Yeah, it might turn into another... Uh, I guess Caulfield Guineas where all the horses win, three-year-old wins and they go out to stud and we'll lose another <laughs> a crop of, of decent superstars coming through, but we'll guess we'll wait and see. I'm cognizant of your time. I know you're a very busy man. I just want to touch on briefly uh, money management. I know you mentioned earlier that it's sort of critical that everyone is pretty sensible with their money and I've heard from some very astute people in the past about different approaches they have to money management and staking and and their bankroll. Do you want to take us through briefly about, I guess, some of the key things you think about when it comes to money management? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I could only, I guess, reaffirm what your other guests have no doubt said, and that's that as a punter, your entire success hinges on your ability to manage your money and to make good decisions about the amount of money that you place on horses. So in my case, it's very much about having a betting bank, the amount of capital that you have put aside for betting. Uh, it's about having a consistent approach, race to race, um, not being affected by your past results, just playing each race on its own merits. Uh, just because you've lost the last 10 races, it doesn't make you more likely to, to win this race. Uh, and equally, if you've won six or seven or, or 10 of your last 10, it doesn't make you... 
the king of the racing world and and in and invincible so my approach is very much about betting to collect or win a certain amount of my bankroll based on the the price of the horse or the price that i assess and i essentially just implement that on a consistent basis for each bet Uh, sometimes if i think there's a a really big opportunity with the price of the market i will uh, go outside of those normal boundaries to to try and maximize that opportunity Um, but that's more the exception rather than the rule uh, generally, as I said, you're just playing each race on a consistent basis, uh, betting your horses to collect the same amount of money uh, based on the assessment that you have and just letting, I guess, the, the percentages work in your favour over the long term. Um, you, you will go through good and bad runs. Uh, the bad runs are what challenge every punter. They're what we all go through. And one of the keys to success is, is your ability to manage that process of betting. And what I mean by that is the ability to do your analysis, make your decisions, put your bets on in the right way, and just do that consistently on a week-to-week basis, uh, handling and managing yourself through uh, both the good and bad runs while, while trying to maintain a level head. And you really need to build up that capability as, as a punter. I mean, success is about far more than, than some magical selection process. Um, it, it's very much, I would say, at least 65% uh, influenced by your ability to uh, manage that process within yourself, do it consistently uh, and, and handle your money in the right way because that's what will you know, become the roadblock to your success is either running out of money, making decisions you regret by placing you know, bets that are too large for your comfort zone and or you know, having those events reduce your confidence to the level that you start to question whether you really want to be betting or, or anything like that anymore. So the challenge is to... You know, have a consistent plan, stick to it, be prepared to be patient and just understand that winning and losing runs are, are a part of the game. But if you're doing the right thing, then, then over time the percentages will start to, to work in your favour and, and as you go through that process, you'll develop more skill, more experience and, and more confidence that you can do it successfully. Yeah, absolutely. That's certainly a consistent message and one that we've heard from some of the very best who've been doing it for a long time. Before I let you go, Daniel, where can people find you online and I guess at Twitter? And also, will you be doing any free content throughout the spring on a Friday afternoon or anything like that as you have done in the past? Yeah, well, firstly, I mean, people can reach me on Twitter at TRB Horse Racing. Uh, you can also contact me uh, through one of our websites, betsmart.racing. Uh, and generally over the spring, yeah, we're always putting up sort of free articles, whether they be analysis of, of races that have been run and where different horses might fit, uh, interesting stats, uh, whether it be about trainers, jockeys, uh, you know, races, form angles and things like that. And, and really sort of following me on Twitter is the is the best place to get all of those. Yeah, absolutely. I can suggest Daniel as a very good follow on Twitter, especially throughout the spring when I don't have as much time to have a look at too many uh, races and I want to have a bet here or there. So certainly appreciate all the free content that you give out. Daniel, thank you very much for joining me. It's been a great pleasure of mine to have a chat to you and I've certainly been following for, for many years now. So All the very best with the upcoming spring, and I hope to do this again soon. Thanks, Jake. Cheers.